going through a series in Titus. And so we started last week. We went through the first, how many cha- uh, verses? Four verses. So the way we're going to see four divided by 87 and something. I don't know. We're going to be doing a, a couple. Oh, 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 I pushed the wrong button. Okay. So here's the letter of Paul to Titus. Now this is sort of an overview chart of the book of Titus. There's three chapters, and this guy named Chuck Swindoll, he gave a title to each of the chapters. And so the first chapter he is taking charge the elders over these rebellious people, the Cretans. Then the second chapter is giving advice Older men and older men and women, young women and men, Titus and all the leaders and slaves and masters, and then doing right, what to do, what not to do. So these three chapters are uh, divided up. So each one has a specific uh, focus. And so in chapter one, it is, for example, setting up right leadership. Chapter 2 is instructions for particular people. And chapter 3, attitude and conduct towards good and bad. Titus rule in encouraging right living through sound doctrine. That's the theme. Right living through sound doctrine. So that's the theme of this study. How to live right. How to live right? Well, we have to know what is the foundation. And that is the word doctrine, the teachings. Right living through sound doctrine, sound teaching. This is from chapter 2. It says this. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Right living through sound doctrine. Now, as we started last week, we went through these four verses. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
So we broke it down into seven little phrases of what we were looking at. The first is understanding your identity. Who are you? Like Paul identified himself as the bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But if you're a believer, you identify yourself as a bondservant of God, and you are his messenger. <laughs> Obviously, Paul has a little higher status as far as in that calling, but each one of us, if we're a follower of Christ, we are his servant. We are to be his servant. Is that the way I look at myself? As a bondservant of Christ and his messenger. Am I telling others? Am I one that will tell the good news to the people? So we look at who, who am I? Understanding my identity. A growth in godliness. We're chosen. For the faith of those chosen of God, the knowledge of truth which is according to godliness. We're chosen and we're now living and we're supposed to live a godly life. In the hope of eternal life. Why? We know that we have eternal life. Knowing Jesus is knowing that you have eternal life. It's not something that's in the future. It's something that's starting right now. Count on God's character. God who cannot lie. We've been presented the gospel. We have the Bible. We have this book. Where we read many things about what God has said and promised. We can trust Him. He's a God. We can count on God's character. We can trust in God's timing. But at the proper time, manifested even in His Word. So at the right time, Christ came. At the right time, you heard. At the right time, you responded. giving primacy to the proclamation. In the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So what was the call that Paul had? He was to go and tell the good news to the Gentiles. What's our call? Our call is to live a life to where we're salt and light in the world we live in. So we're supposed to be proclaiming the good news in our life. In the last, committed to what we have in common. Titus to my, my true child in common faith. So Paul had this connection with Titus because he was a fellow believer. How do we as a community relate to one another? We have a common faith. And so hopefully there's an encouragement that this is a letter is written to us that we can also identify with. That we can see truths that we can apply to our lives. So that was just the first four verses. Now, <clears throat> when did these people on Crete become believers? Who was Paul writing to? In Acts chapter 2, you know the story about how Peter got up and he spoke to all the crowds that was in Jerusalem. And there were thousands of people that heard that day. And something amazing happened that when the Holy Spirit came, a big rushing sound filled the city and people came and 
to this place in this, this upper room where the, the disciples were because they heard this big noise there. And all of a sudden, uh, these people come out and start preaching and teaching in their own languages. And so it's less a few of these people that were there that heard the gospel preached by Peter and one of the 120 people that was there was also preaching, repeating what Peter said in Cretan. Or if you were from Spain, it would have been Spanish. Or if you were from Japan, it would have been Japanese. Or if you were from Korea, it would have been Korean. If you are from China, it would have been Chinese. You wouldn't expect that, being someone in Jerusalem, to come and celebrate the Hebrew-Jewish tradition of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Which feast is it? I can't remember. Anyway, some feast. You wouldn't expect to hear your own language being spoken because you would have learned Hebrew in order to celebrate. And so one of the groups of people that was there says right here, listen, the Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds, deeds of God. And so there were people from Crete in Jerusalem, which is around 30 AD, and heard the gospel and became believers. They believed. And so when they left Crete, they went back. And look at the timeline here. Right now, the day of Pentecost will be right about here on this chart. This will probably be right about AD 30. And we're looking at the timeline of, of the Apostle Paul's journeys, the epistles and journeys. And the, we read about all these journeys that Paul had in, the, in Acts. We read about his, his conversion. And we read about all these places he went. He went to jail. He went on three new missionary journeys for sure. And then he was in prison. And then when he was released from prison, we believe that he had one more journey he went on. And then he eventually was put in prison again and, and was beheaded. Right there. Okay. Right there. Second imprisonment and Paul's beheaded. Right around 67, 68 AD. And so, in 63 AD is when Acts, the book we have in the Bible here, ends. This story, this book we're reading, is the part he's writing to Titus in, uh, on, on uh, Crete. This is after the Acts of the Apostles. So it takes place somewhere in here. Right around there. 67, 68. The gospel had come to Crete in 30 AD. Titus receives this letter from Paul around 68, 65, 68 AD. Crete was known as an island of 100 cities. During the nearly 40 years, several churches had been established on the island, but they needed help. These Cretans that were Jewish proselytes, or maybe even Jewish, went back to their island. And for almost 40 years, they had been there. So there were churches in Crete for 40 years. This was Titus' task, to help the Cretan churches. 
Albert Barnes tells us about two challenges Titus will encounter in this effort in Crete. The character of the Cretans themselves was such as to demand the vigilance and care of Titus. They were a people characterized for insincerity, falsehood, and gross living. There was great danger, therefore, that their religion would be hollow and insincere, and great need of caution, lest they should be corrupted from the simplicity and purity required in the gospel. So the Cretans' reputation in the Mediterranean was not good. They were known as liars, cheats, swindlers. And so in our culture today, you think of maybe some people in your country that have a reputation of not being very trustworthy. Like here in Northern Newland, there's a place called Mosubu. And everyone in Northern Newland knows you don't drive your car too slow through Mosubu. Because if you do, your hubcaps won't be stolen. It's a reputation. It's not true. But they had a reputation from back in the 1800s of being a, a very sneaky group of people. And so that sort of characterized, even today, here we're in 2000 and, and what, 2017. And that probably is not true of these people for the last 50 years, but even I have heard about their reputation. So just think of these Cretans. They're known throughout the Mediterranean as being a bunch of thieves and you can't trust them. So Titus, this is the group of people he's going to be talking to. Second, the influence of Judaizing teachers was to be guarded against. It is evident from Acts 2.11 that there were Jews residing there and it is probable that this it was by those who had gone from that island to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Pentecost and who had been converted on that occasion that the gospel was first introduced there. From this epistle also it is clear that one of the great dangers of piety in the church of Crete arose from the efforts of such teachings, the Judaizers. And from the plausible arguments which they would use in favor of the Mosaic Law. To counteract the effect of their teaching, it was necessary, necessary to have ministers of the gospel appointed in every important place who should be qualified for their work. To make these arrangements was the great design for which Titus was left there, and to give him full information as to the kind of ministers which was needed, which was needed this, this the reason this epistle was written. Okay, so here we have some people who became Christians and believers in Jerusalem in 30 AD. They traveled back to this island of Crete, and for the next 35 years, there's been the gospel on Crete, and many people have become Christians. And so when we start reading this letter and seeing what the qualifications are for the, for the elders of the church, what is, I think we have to recognize, there were mature Christians on this island of Crete. They hadn't had any visit before that we read of in the Gospels of any of the apostles and the other teachers that have come there to help assist this church. But when Titus is to go out 
to each of these hundred cities, or how many there were that he could go to, he would be able to find individuals that could be qualified to be a leader of the church. And so he was assigned to do that. Paul gave him that assignment. So just like today, when we hear about how the gospel went to India in the first century, we have the story that we understand that Thomas, one of the apostles, went to India and spread the gospel. And so when the Portuguese missionaries came later on, several hundreds of years later, when they came, they found Christians in India, a very established church there. And so this is the same way, so when Paul and Titus went to, to Crete, they found Christians there. But the thing is, the churches weren't organized. They didn't have structure. They needed to be led by godly elders. And so this is why Paul gave Titus this charge. And so that's what we're going to look at now, the next uh, see, verses 4 through 9 tonight. And here's what it says. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man who is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of disputation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devoted, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it's a very extensive list of things he's going to look for, individuals. And the amazing thing is, those people are there. That means that people who had become believers grew in their faith, were faithful. And that when the time an opportunity arose, when Titus came to install leaders of the church, he would be able to find mature believers to take those positions. So this should be something that should encourage you as a believer. Are you walking faithfully? Are you following and reading God's word and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and direct your lives? Are you growing so you can be mature? So Paul is instructing Timothy to find elders, mature Christians, to be the leaders of churches, of fellowships that have been there for many of them up to 30 years. So we're talking about places that would have second generation Christians. So this is not a new mission field. This is a place that's been reached with the gospel, but there was disorder because they had lacked some formal teaching of how to set it up. And so this is what we're going to do with that now. So for this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So we're going to see three things in this. First, in Titus' text, 
And this word set in order is like when you go and you've broken your arm and you have to put a cast on it. They go to the doctor and he does a terrible thing. He pulls the arm or whatever, puts the bones back in place and then sets them. And, or like when you go to a dentist and somebody's had braces, making your teeth straight. This is the, the whole idea of where you're taking something that is already there and it needs to be put in place. And so this is what Titus' task is. He has a, a, a task to put things in order, to set things right. All the right components are there, but they need some assistance. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to set things in order. The second is, he's going to choose elders. He says, appoint elders in every city. Plurality. He's trying to say, find one or two, not just one, try to find a group of people to work together. So it's not one person in having responsibility. It's a uh, leadership team, I'll use that word. Where it's not supposed to be solely built on one person leading that congregation, that church. No, find a group of people that are mature, <coughs> set them in place to be the leaders of that fellowship. The third is, as I directed you. We don't have it written down specifically, well, he's doing it right here, he's gonna be doing it. But Paul has a, a, a particular form in mind how to set up the church. What is the proper way to have the church structure? It's not talking about the building. It's talking about how we as a church should function. And so you have both a, uh, you'll, see, you'll see two words here. <coughs> we have a word elder. Where is it? Elder, elder, elder. That's sort of like a title. Usually it means older person or mature person, older. So that's sort of the title that person has. And the other is his function is an overseer. What he's supposed to do? He's to oversee. He's to uh, guide, shepherd. And so in church history, those two words have been used differently in different denominations. This is where you get uh, presbyter, Presbyterian. You get the word bishop. These are taking those words and then making them into some, some type of hierarchical system. When we look at it in the New Testament, it's not a hierarchy. A bishop and an elder and an overseer, they're all the same, same person. Okay, so this is the, I'll call Titus's object, object uh, uh, objective is to find elders. Second part is, these elders he's to find, what are their qualifications? What is he, what is Paul telling him is the requirements of someone to be an elder? Now recall now, we already have churches that have been established here for 30 years or so. And so we have men that have grown up in the faith, and immature and could be able to have these characteristics. So Paul could find them. And Titus could find them. Now the first is, it says, namely, if any man is above reproach. That's not popular right now. 
in 2017 because we have a certain tendency of many people saying that that's not that's not broad enough. It's supposed to, how, how can half of the church be disqualified for not being able to be a pastor or leader of a church? So this is a very interesting uh, matter. Look at 1 Timothy 3. It says this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to an office of an overseer, it is a fine work for he desires he desires to do. An overseer then must be a rubber coach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or nations, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be a one who manages his own house with gold well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a good convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here you have another place that Paul is talking about an overseer, an elder, for the collocations. And he says, it's a good thing if someone would like to be an elder or an overseer, to take that responsibility. But it's a big responsibility. And so some people have no desire. There are many people in church today that are mature Christians that have no, they don't have the desire. God doesn't give them the desire to be that person responsible. They want to be a faithful member and part of the body of Christ, but they don't have the call or the desire to be in leadership. So that's fine. But if someone does, well, these are the qualifications. This is what is required. But you have to have the desire to do it. And so when, for example, uh, if and when we are looking for other people to join our fellowship, and to be a part of the, the team, uh, if, I, if I'd ask someone, the way our protocol is, I ask people if they'd like to be a part, and I ask you, and, and you say, well, I don't really feel like it. Well, then okay. I'm not going to force. It has to be something that has to be, you can say, well, let me consider that and pray about it, and see if there's something the Lord wants to do. But if someone can turn up to me, please, what are you on? Oh, please, please, please. I don't, I don't necessarily go look at it. That's too much. But first, if a man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is the fine work he desires to do. But in the context of this, we look and see where this person is. We go back in a couple of verses before. In 1 Timothy, we have 2, verses 9 through 15. First, in the context of this, we're talking about the fellowship. If you look in the first part of chapter 2, it talks about how we're talking about a, uh, an assembly where we're together. We here as an assembly, we're together. How is this assembly to be conducted? It talks about how we're supposed to sing and rejoice and praise together and have, uh, lift our hands up together and pray. And then how are women to be in that connection? It says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, and discreetly, 
not with braided hair or gold or, pearl, gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works and it is proper for a woman making a claim of to godliness. A woman must be quiet, and quiet doesn't mean, for example, other places we read in 1 Corinthians and that to where women pray in the church. Women prophesy. Women can have a voice in the church. Let's talk about women are to be orderly in the church. There's an order. There's a, there's a time and place but it has to be quietly received instruction with entire submissiveness. Thank you. Okay. But do not allow a woman to teach or ex exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That's very harsh. But why? Paul gives a reason. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived until the tra transgression. But a woman will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I took this little two paragraphs from Wayne Grumman's Evangelical Feminism and Physical Truth to try to clarify this and what I understand. Because God gave Adam a leadership role when he created first Adam, when he created first Adam and Eve second, and God gave them, gave men in general, a disposition that is better suited for to teaching and govern, governing the church, a disposition that inclines more to rational, logical analysis of doctrine, and desire to protect the doctrinal purity of the church. And God gave women, in general, a disposition that inclines more towards a relational, nurturing emphasis that places a higher value on unity and community in the church. Both emphases are needed, of course, and both men and women have some measure of both tendencies. But Paul understands the kinder, general, more rational, relational nature of women as something that may be less inclined to oppose the deceptive servant and more inclined to accept his words as something helpful and true. Likewise, okay, going back. So what he's saying is that there's two reasons why Paul said that it should be men as an elder and not women. And he goes back to Genesis. He goes to the creative order. And he said, God created man first. He gave him that position of leadership. The second is where it says that he made uh, men and women different. And that they have a different disposition. Again, this is generally speaking, the character or the disposition of a man and the disposition of a woman. Order of creation, Adam's first, then Eve. God gave the differences of disposition to men and women. So when you read this verse, do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman's being deceived, fell into transgression. 
So it's based upon a creation setting. It's taking place before the fall. So it's not taken, it's not, oh, don't let Eve because she was she sinned first. It doesn't say that. It's not because she sinned. That she doesn't allow me to teach. No. Has God created man and woman differently? And that he set Adam, created Adam first. That way. This is the same way. There's two places in the New Testament in, in the way that we are to live as the body of Christ. Two areas that have uh, this hierarchy, let's say. That's in the church and in the home. In a marriage, the man is the head of the wife. Just as God is the head of Christ. Or as Christ is the head of the church. So it's not looking at things being of less value or of importance. It's an order that God's made. So that would be my position. Our position. The first is that an elder's qualification, any man, if any man is above reproach, above reproach, how do people see him, perceive him? Is he an honest, worthy man? Is he a man that behaves properly, that doesn't cheat on his taxes, that doesn't beat his children, that doesn't steal from his neighbors? What is his character? He's above reproach. So most of these things we're going to look at right now, here about, are about his character, not necessarily about how great he is in teaching. But it's more about how he is in his life. And in fact, we'll end up by this portion when we get down to the bottom here, the bottom, to be basically, are you living your life as one who is led by the Spirit? So is the fruits of the Spirit evident in your life? And so a mature Christian should have those fruits visible in his life. If we say that we believe, our life's actions should show it. And we'll see this in Titus. He's always talking about doing good deeds. Is your life uh, reflecting or showing what you believe. Are you living what you say you believe? So there's that word called hypocrite, which most of us know, which means that, oh, he says something, but he lives a different way. A Christian, we're not supposed to be hypocrites. We're supposed to say what we believe, and we're actually supposed to act that way. And so that's what this person, is he one that actually lives? He's above reproach. And also we have to recognize there is no perfect person. There's one perfect person, and that's Jesus. But we have been saved by grace through faith. And what he says, he wants to restore and reconcile us and bring us closer and closer in our life's walk to Reflect Christ. Okay, the second is 
The husband of one wife having children to believe, not accused of dispensation. I can't never say the word. Or rebellion. Okay. So this is, is this a qualification? You have to be married to be an elder. Well, if that's so, then Barnabas, Paul, Timothy, Titus, many other people who read the New Testament wouldn't qualify. So is this what is being taught here? And so I'd like to read one passage. This is from, I'll give you the name of the part of this second slide. This issue is not an elder or deacon's marital status, but his moral and sexual, sexual purity. This qualification heads the list because it is the area that leaders are mostly prone to fail. Some take the qualifications for deacon a deacon must be the husband of but one wife, as meaning that for a man to be a deacon, he must be married. This is not the meaning of husband of one wife. In the Greek, the phrase husband of one wife literally means one woman man. For a man to be considered for a position of church leadership and he is married, he must be committed to his wife. This qualification is speaking of fidelity in marriage and sexual purity. It is not a requirement for a marriage. If we were, if it were, a man would have to be married and also have children, because the second half, First Timothy three twelve states, and must manage his children and his household well. We should understand this qualification as: if a man is married, he must be faithful to his wife; if a man is, has children, he must manage them well. Some think this requirement excludes single men from church leadership. But if that were Paul's intent, he would have disqualified himself. A one-woman man is one totally devoted to his wife, maintaining singular devotion, affection, and sexual purity in both thought and deed. To violate, violate this is to forfeit, forfeit blamelessness and no longer be above reproach. Being single is praised by the apostle Paul as enabling more faithful service to the Lord. Why would Paul restrict men from church leadership positions when he believes an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord? In the first nine verses of chapter uh, of this chapter, Paul establishes that both marriage and singleness are good and right before the Lord. An elder or deacon must either be married or single as long as he meets the qualifications of godliness outlined in 1 Timothy and Titus. So that's my position, my understanding. So we have this where we have uh, elders' qualifications. A man, he's above reproach, and he is moral and sexual uh, purity. And then we're going to go into character. There's first five things that are one's character. The first is not self-willed. That'd be a very headstrong person that's going to have to be right in every situation and everyone has to follow him. A self-willed person. Where he doesn't listen to anyone else's critique or consideration. He's thoughts. He rules everything. And is not very humble not very giving, doesn't listen to others. He's the king. 
This is my church, and I'll, if you don't like it, leave. Everyone has to submit to him. The deacon board is just a, a uh, rubber stamp. Whatever decides, they do. If you don't like it, leave. Self-love. Not a nice characteristic. It's negative. Not quick-tempered. What do you mean? Not quick-tempered. Okay. How do you respond? If I get angry very quickly, if this person gets angry a lot and is very irrational in his responses, you don't want that. You want to have someone that is not quick-tempered. Not addicted to wine, but I like bourbon. No. <laughs> or beer. That's even better. No, no. It means that you're not under control of another substance. And so a lot of, I've read a lot of commentaries on this stuff, and, and uh, knowing from my background and my, I, I come up from a teetotaler back, background, where it was terrible. People, you, you look at the glass of wine, you're sitting but that's not what Paul's teaching. And so we have to recognize that what he's saying is do not allow another substance to control your life. The fruit of the Spirit is that it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And this can be a very... Uh, we have to watch out that we don't use this particular uh, attribute. <laughs> as a way to control people. Because there are some churches, well, well, you can't drink, but I don't drink because if I drink, someone might sin. Do you go to a movie? If you go to movies, you might cause someone else to sin. Because movies, like, I, I grew up, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go girls do, you don't go to movies, you don't drink. And so I, you know, if I broke all these rules, what's going on? There are certain things that we should do as a Christian that we have to watch out that it only cause a brother, a weaker brother to stumble. But that weaker brother cannot use something to control the church. So again, beware. But this is, if the uh, elder is walking around with a, a bottle of wine all the time, and uh, or has his beer bottle in the bag or something. No, we don't want that. Or I would say today would be taking drugs, taking stimulants that keep you awake or or you're hooked on them. Anything that because that, that's that's the problem. You have people that are on depressants. You have people that are on on amphetamines and that kind of stuff, and it can affect one. So a person that's going to be an elder. Can't be in that situation. Not confrontations. Likes to get in fights. He's one of the ways he likes to solve a problem is, oh, okay, Christian thing, we'll just meet outside. I'll show you everything. Well, actually, I paired it with someone who's smaller than Christian. What if I? I'm gonna find some smaller who's wider. All right. No, that you want to physically. Control things. That overbearingness. This also can be a verbal attacks. 
belittling people, being vicious, being, being a mean person, bullying. There's, there's history in churches, so you can see all this stuff. And so this, elders are not that explaining. Some of us have backgrounds in churches or observe other churches, and when you see what's happening, you're saying, well, wait a minute. I don't want to even be a Christian if that's the way the church is supposed to be. So we have to watch out who we put in leadership. We want to have the right kind of characteristics. Not fond of sorrow game. Likes money. The ones that stick out of my mind are people that we see uh, what we call televangelists. People on TV. The most recent one that we see, I don't know, I don't know him, but he got a, a big slap in the face. A guy named Joel Osteen in his way of responding to the hurricane in, in, uh, in Texas. He's a prosperity preacher. Uh, he's very well known. Many of you might even have his books. But his actions didn't quite line up with what the reality is. But I don't want to judge him. But it seems that he has an awful big bank account. And so that's not the goal of a elder. Can I enrich myself if I become in that position? Can I control the money? Well, they're offering. I'll put that in the bank for tomorrow. Why am I down having hamburger? <laughs> oh, oh, no. no, not fun sort of game. So the first, is, the first, we have five negative, negative characteristics that we're supposed to look at. Titus is supposed to look at when he's going out and choose these men to be leaders of the fellowship. Now we're going to see a few positives. Hospitable. Opens his home. Willing to invite people in. Friendly to newcomers. So that's supposed to be part of the exactly. Loving good. Like there's this one thing you can, there's this one part, whatever is good, whatever is profitable, whatever is, I can't remember it all off. That's one of the praises in the Bible. To where you have this positive attitude where you always look at the good of people. You try to look at the good part. You don't want to tear down, you want to build up. Sensible. Reasonable ways of talking to someone, having a good discussion, having a debate, using logic, not overbearing, which is the opposite of the other person, or demanding that you listen to me, call out authority. But sensible, just. One to see, be fair. One of the right to prevail. Devout. Really, he lives the life that he talks about. You'll see him on in church on Sunday giving a nice talk. You see him out doing something later on in the week that doesn't match. He's not devout. He's not reverent. He's not serious. 
You don't want that guy. You want someone that's devout, that really believes what he says. Self-control. Does he have control of his actions, his life? Or is it just a big scatterbrain thing? I go back to this. There's six positives. But when we look at this, right here, I look at Galatians 5, 16 through 24. This is what we, as believers, are encouraged to consider and live to. This is what we, each one of us, but I say, walk by the Spirit, then you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh has desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, just think of the negatives that I just read. Just think of the reputation of the Cretans, of who they are as a society. Okay, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, fractions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, are these the characteristics you want to have of an elder? So basically, this is describing, in a sense, the Cretan reputation. And so, if you're a Christian, and you're in Crete, and you're living like that, well, there's something wrong. So you, even if you don't want to be an elder, you just want to be a follower of Jesus, these should not be a characteristic that you're living out. But here's what we are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now so this is a contrast between living in the flesh or living in the spirit. And what's amazing is that people on Crete were living in the spirit. Because Titus could find men in these cities that had churches that he could install as elders because they exemplified this. So it's not something that is impossible if one is willing to walk by faith and not by sight. To be faithful to the one that called you. Now, that we have those character issues decided on who is to be an elder. We come down to those excellent. Holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings. 
It's a doctrinal requirement. Holding fast to the teachings. Two verses I just want to share. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for the proof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Okay. This, we have this, this one. And if you remember that first chart I showed, Titus is on Crete after Paul wrote most of his letters. So, Paul's letters are being circulated. They also have the Old Testament. They have these teachings. They have the, the Word. Also, they were continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayer. It's very important. Apostles' teaching. Holding fast to the faithful Word, which is according with the teaching. So where are they getting their teaching? What are they holding fast to? This is where the leader, the elder, is to be aware of God's word. But the main characteristics, requirements, has been on his, who he is as a person. His character. And also that he has a good working knowledge of the word of God. Then there's two last things. The elder's job, his responsibility, so that he be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So, exhort in sound doctrine. That's to the fellowship. When we're here gathered together, teaching the word, is he able to communicate and build up and expound the word of God? That's his task to do for the church, for the building up of the saints. The other part, defend and sound doctrine. To be able to, if someone comes with a doctrine or a teaching that is opposed to sound doctrine, that he be able to refute it, to confront it, and say, we don't want that here. So that's just a review of those verses. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and lead to ruin of the hearers, but be diligent to present yourself proof of God, a workman who does not need, need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word truth. That's what an elder is to do. Accurately handle the word of truth. Later on in Titus, we'll see there's a problem with people like to talk a lot and teach false things. Well, an elder has to be able to stand up against them. So, elders, need, el elders are needed. That was Titus's job. The elder's qualification, a man above reproach, morally and sexually pure. His five characteristics are his five negative, six positive. He has a doctrine requirement, holding fast to God's word, and he has the job of exhorting in sound doctrine and defending sound doctrine. Titus' role in encouraging right-wing through sound doctrine. It's not just leaders that have to have sound doctrine delivered. It's us 
each one of us. So this is an encouragement to us to be faithful to the one that's called us and to know his word and to live accordingly. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Am I denying ungodliness and worldly desires? That's the question. Am I saying, no, thank you? I don't want that. I want to live sensibly, righteously, God right now. That's my desire. Because I put my faith and trust in Jesus. It's not just words. It's reality. It's who I am. I'm a follower of Christ. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is coming back. Are you waiting for him? Oh, don't come back because I have to do some of this. No. Are you, he can come now. Are you expecting, are you waiting? Is that the best thing you can think of? Or is it, oh no, I, I'd like to, viewers, I'd like to get married, or have kids, or I'd like to have a big business, or I want to experience so many things. No. It is your biggest hope in waiting for Jesus. Take him. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own position, zealous for good deeds. Who do you belong to? I belong to Christ. Who do you belong to? I hope you love the And what does he want us to do? He's made us for zealous for good deeds. We're going to get more of that in Titus. We're not just supposed to sit here in the church and clap each other in the back. Oh, that's a great friend of Jesus. No, we're supposed to be in the world. And we're supposed to be demonstrating who God is through our lives. In good works. In good deeds. It's not because we want to earn our salvation or get brownie points. No, it's because we are saved. And he's given us a task to do. Just like Titus is given a task to find elders. We have a task to be salt and light in the world. Let's do that together. Okay. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we just had an opportunity to read through your word. Just Speak to each one of us through your Holy Spirit. This quickness today. Let us live our lives in total submission to you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name.
few lines from Mark. This is Mark 15, starting with verse 22. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, waging their head, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And then chapter 16. Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He had risen. He's not here. That's why we're here. Right? That's why we're here because that happened. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of, remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In remembrance of me. Everything we're doing is about Jesus and his directed towards Jesus. And it's because of Him that we are here, that we can call ourselves saved and hopeful. Right. Right. So I will ask uh, Christian and Bay to come up and help me with communion. Um, what we recommend 